Welcome to the Think Podcast with Joel Sedicase. I'm Joel Sedicase. And this is the show for Christians and all questioners who want to take their study of the biblical worldview and its defense to the next level. Have you ever felt weary? So weary that you felt it in your soul? When was that? Maybe it was after busy season at work, or maybe after wrapping up a major ministry project, or caring for a loved one. As a Christian, did you ever think that your theology, your knowledge about God could get you through? And I don't mean just seeking a head fix by repeating Bible verses that tell you what to do, like Philippians 4, 6, which says, Do not be anxious about anything, gritting your teeth and trying to white-knuckle your way through. I also don't mean seeking an emotional fix by simply citing a verse that might hit you right in the feelings and give you an emotional high, like Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Neither way, seeking only a head fix or only an emotional fix is very effective. Yet, as Christians, we are supposed to have everything needed for life and godliness. And we're supposed to be able to take what we know about God and experience rest and restoration for our weary souls. So, how exactly does that happen? Well, in this episode, we're going to help you find the answer. My guest is Pastor Joe Thorne. Joe has written several books about the relationship between theology and the Christian life. One of those books is Experiencing the Trinity, in which he explains how a robust knowledge of God's nature can strengthen one's faith and even bring believers back from the brink of falling away and restore them after burnout, distress, and exhaustion. We'll discuss the importance of theology, as well as finding theological coaches to help us along our journey. Joe is the lead pastor at Redeemer Fellowship in St. Charles, Illinois, and a co-host of the Doctrine and Devotion podcast with Jimmy Fowler. He has helped me out tremendously during times of exhaustion and trial in my own life. He's a gentleman and a scholar, and I know he's going to make you think. All right. Well, Joe Thorne, thanks for joining me on the Think Podcast. Man, awesome to be here. Really grateful. Thank you for the invitation, and thank you for bringing me the awesome coffee. I needed it. I had I was I had my first meeting today at 6 a.m., and the coffee mm, wasn't so good. And so now I feel like I'm, feel like I'm redeeming my coffee experience for the day, so thank you, man. I appreciate it. Praise the Lord, man. I'm, I'm happy to help. Um, coffee and uh, solid theology are just two of the, the services that I offer. Uh, now, I'm pretty confident that most or all of my listeners are going to know who you are, but just for those who might not, um, how would you describe yourself in three words? Short, bald, and um, angry. Maybe that. Maybe short, bald, and bearded. Short. Short would be one of them, for sure. Uh, but I am a, uh, I'm a husband, I am a pastor, and I am a podcaster. So those are, I'm a writer. There's four. There's four words. So I'm going, I'm breaking the rules already. Nice, man. Well, um, I just recently read your book, Encountering the Trinity, Experiencing the Trinity. 
Uh, Encountering the Trinity was uh, that was written by uh, Joe Schmorn. It's not 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 nearly as good. Yeah, um, but I, but I was originally introduced to you because you were actually mentoring my good friend and uh, fellow pastor at the time. This is back in 2015, and then I reached out to you because I was going through a little bit of a period of uncertainty, um, angst, anxiety, and you and I met up. You let me hang out with you and your crew over at Levita Cigars, and really took the time to talk through my situation with me. And I got to tell you, that really had a huge impact on me. And, uh, and we've kept in touch a little bit over the last few years. And, and you've continued to offer me some good, solid advice, biblical advice. And I know that mentoring, coaching, younger guys especially, is something that you're passionate about, something that you spend a lot of your time and energy doing. And I was not a member of Redeemer. I was not a member of your church. And so that really meant a lot to me. And I know I'm not the only guy that you've mentored as well. So how did you get into mentoring? How did you get into this coaching younger guys like this? Well, I, I think a, a lot of us had, a lot of us have had a similar experience where, you know, maybe you become a Christian or your Christian walk starts to really pick up steam and intensify at a certain point in your life. And we're hungry. We, we want to eat and we want to work. We want to work out like spiritually and, and no one's really helping. Like it's a lot of us have been in that place where you, we have to self feed and you, you can do that to a certain extent, but we're designed to live in community. We're designed to have relationships where one person can show another how to do it better. Um, we're, we're designed for discipleship. That is, I think, you know, very peer to peer. Um, so I think a lot of us want that. I know I wanted that. And for the first number of years of my Christian walk, I, I didn't really have that. And for at least the first three to four years, um, I had friends and, and peers that we would hang out and preach the gospel and all that, but nobody that uh, I felt could, not that I felt could, but nobody that would take the time to say, hey, like, let me take you under my wing and show you how to do it. So I was hungry for it, I think naturally, and I think um, uh, it was probably a combination of experiencing that finally from a pastor who was able to essentially show me the ropes about church life and pastoral life that I'd never really seen. Like, what is it really like to be a pastor? Mm. You know, but, but behind, uh, you know, Sunday morning, what are they like in their homes? Like, you know, what, what do they do with their kids? Um, what do they, how do they handle it when their wife is mad at them for some reason? Right. Mm. Uh, so he, he did that, uh, for me. And, I guess uh, once I got into pastoral ministry, it was uh, it was a sort of a natural thing. I, I when it comes to helping younger people that are called to leadership, that's a very big emphasis for me. Um, it's because I I'm desperate to see people that are called to serve the Lord serve the Lord well. Um, I want to see these guys succeed. So you know, even at our church, we raise up men and women. Uh, to serve to the highest capacities of their unique callings and leadership. So that's just something that uh, I guess we're, we, we value, I value, and uh, the goal is, right, to work yourself completely out of a job, like raise up enough people that can do everything and so that uh, you're not needed. So if the Lord calls me home, the church doesn't miss a beat, everybody's ready to go. And I know one of the things that, you know, like I said, you helped me through a time of, anxiety. I know you've written about anxiety, burnout, despair, partially from your own experience. Um, what are some of the biggest myths that Christians have believed over the years about anxiety and despair? Well, I don't, I don't know if I can answer the question, what are the biggest, biggest myths? Um, but I think some common misconceptions 
are that um, about, did you say anxiety or despair? Are we going to lump it all together? Yeah. Okay. Well, should we not do that? No, it's good. It's fine. Um, uh, one is that uh, in every case, your anxiety or despair is merely a matter of, uh, of faith. Um, sometimes it very much is a matter of faith. It's a matter of believing the wrong things and needing to repent. Um, sometimes it's, you know, sometimes we have anxiety because we're hiding sin and indulging sin, and therefore our consciences are afflicted, and the spirit is, you know, kicking our tail. Um, but sometimes uh, we run into feelings of anxiety and despair because we are simply overworked, and uh, we're not resting, we're not eating right, and suddenly our body starts to function differently, and it, you, enough stress can induce uh, chemical changes in the brain, which then... In, bring up this, these feelings of either depression or anxiety. And so all that to say, one of the misconceptions is that, well, it's just, you know, anxiety. Jesus said, don't worry, so knock it off, mm -hmm. right? It's a little more complicated than that. Some, some anxieties require medicine, and even the Puritans argued for this. Um, so uh, it doesn't mean that every form of anxiety should be treated with medication, but nevertheless. Um, so that's, that's, that's one of them. And honestly, I think the most common misconception is one that most people, most Christians, and especially pastors, have ab about anxiety in their life, which is we say, you're just being a baby. You need to get over it. Um, you have no reason to be anxious. Your church is too small. Like, your responsibilities are, like, there are people much have much bigger plates than you that aren't freaking out. Mm -hmm. So you need to just man up. Uh, and in that person, and I was that person, who won't recognize their weakness and their frailty cannot really get better until they do. So those are, those are a couple of the things that come to mind. Yeah, that's good. That's good stuff. Now, I'm holding here in my hands, experiencing the Trinity, uh, not to be confused with encountering the Trinity. Um, different, book. different book. And, um, you know, man, they're when I read, I like to make my own little table of contents and the inside cover of points that really stuck out to me. And on page 34, I got to tell you, that was the first point that really, that really hit me. Um, you're talking about the whole book and correct me if I'm, if I'm characterizing this wrong, right? But the whole book is about essentially applying theology to your hurting heart. Yep. And on page 34, and, and I, I love the way that you wrote this, by the way, as sort of a, an epistle to yourself. And you say, I know your mind goes quickly to those believers who have starved to death, who suffered great and unjust affliction. You wonder, how did God provide for them? But that question reveals that your understanding of what is needed is far narrower than what God knows is needed and best. Man, that, that was like, it was like you were uh, describing, I mean, I could have written that passage because... So many times during my own trials and tribulations, and I'm talking even back into my early 20s where a lot of my trials were just self-inflicted from my own stupidity. And I remember thinking, well, God will provide. God will take care of me. But what about those saints in North Korea? What about those saints who, you know, in Nazi Germany? What about those saints right now who are starving to death? God clearly doesn't give people what I think would be providing for them. And so I'm reading this and I'm going, man, that's, yeah, that's exactly where my mind goes. And so this point, so what would you say to someone who says, like, I want to trust in God, but I don't see God providing for 
all of his people in the way that I would provide for them if I were God. What, what do you say to somebody who, say, who thinks that way? Well, I think the, uh, the first thing I say is you know, your, your thoughts there um, are not unique. Um, your, your dilemma is one that God's people have had. You read the Psalms, you see the psalmists frequently saying things like, hey, God, I thought you were just. I thought you were for your people. Hey, God, I thought you loved us. Hey, God, why did you abandon me? I mean, God doesn't abandon his people, but, it, but his people say, hey, God, um, just noticed that uh, you totally abandoned me right now, and, uh, and you don't love me. It's clear and it's obvious. So one example is uh, Psalm 73, where the psalmist is saying, God, I know the doctrine that God is good to Israel. Like, I, I know that doctrine, but it doesn't feel like you're good to Israel, because I look around and I see the wicked prospering and living great lives and lives of ease, and I look at the righteous, and they are persecuted and oppressed. And he, he goes so far as to say, like, listen, it's vanity. It's, it feels like vanity is what he's saying. It feels like vanity to follow you, Lord. And then he comes to the point where he says, if I would have gone there all the way, if I would have said this, if I... You know, because I, was, I wasn't even thinking, I wasn't being human, I was thinking like a beast, I was just wasn't, he, he says, um, I, I couldn't understand any of it until I went into the sanctuary of God. Mm. Then I discerned the end of the wicked and he came to understand things. And so what I, what I tell people who are struggling with that kind of a question is, number one, the questions and the confusion are legit. Don't minimize them, mm-hmm. wrestle with them. Number two, um, don't just take your complaints and go home take your complaints to God in his word. Like, God does address these issues. Yeah. He hasn't left us alone. So take your complaints to God and, and ask him to help you to understand and then let God speak in his word, right? So you read the word, you, you study the word. And what we come to see is that God is the father of those who believe. And like every good father, sometimes his plans are confusing. Uh, we're kids, we don't understand them. Uh, Oftentimes we are in pain and the father has to hold us down while the doctor performs the procedure and it's painful and it breaks your heart and you don't understand why, but your dad knows what's best. And I know that that doesn't necessarily make you immediately feel better when you think of the horrible things that can happen to like innocent people and children. But um, what choice do I have but to say God's plan is good and this experience can be evil you know the 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 devil can intend this for 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 evil and wickedness and the and the world can rejoice in the harm that has befallen me but my lord while not rejoicing in the act of wickedness can redeem my experience for his glory and for my good and so i believe that and when it comes to the specific thing about you know what do we do you're basically talking about theodicy at that point right like you know um and I'm one of those guys that said, like, we, we, we have some okay arguments for it, but that's just, it's, a, it's, a, it's somewhat of a mystery. We yeah. say, yeah, that's a big one. We don't have all the answers. But I, I, though it's mysterious, I don't think it is a contradiction. I think that's a false premise. Like, how can a good God create a world in which bad things happen? Right. It, 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 either God is good and, or he doesn't exist. I, 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 don't, I don't buy that premise of that. Yeah, um, the, uh, one of the greatest apologists of all times, in my opinion, Greg Bonson, I was listening to this talk that he did. Um, he was essentially doing theodicy, and which, uh, for those who don't know, theodicy is the justification of God, explaining how God can still be good in the face of all the uh, evil and pain and suffering in the world. And Bonson, I'm listening to this, expecting like this real, like, 
like knock knockout argument. You know, like this is going to be it. I'm going to be able to bring this to every atheist and just, you know, they're going to have to see the 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 rationale and the reason behind this. And he makes he's he's talking and talking. And he finally gets to the end and he goes, "So the reason why God um the reason why there's evil in the world and God is still good is God has a morally sufficient reason for it." And, and I'm I'm like I'm like, "Well, well yeah, but what is that reason, right?" And and essentially he kind of left it where you did where look, God is good. Either God's good or God doesn't exist. And God does exist, therefore God must have a morally sufficient. And who am I as the creature to demand to know what that is? How could we know? Yeah, who are you, old man, to answer back to God? And so now what we're doing there, and I and I love that quote that you that you just pulled from from the Psalms from Psalm 73, where uh, the psalmist, is that David? Asaph. Okay, so he's essentially, he's talking about how he was brutish and like a beast before God. And, but then he comes to his senses and he talks about how this only makes sense in a right relationship, right understanding of God. So what I hear Asaph doing, what I hear you doing is you're applying theology to your doubt, to your anxiety, to your insecurity. And one of the things, the reason why that sticks out to me is because oftentimes, I'm sure I'm not alone in this, I think of my anxiety as being an emotional thing, as a heart thing, but theology is a mind thing. It's a brain thing, you know? And, and so I think, well, if I, if I want to solve my heart, I need to sort of drum up these emotions, you know? How does theology apply to the heart? What's the relationship between a right understanding of God and healing a broken or anxious heart? Well, theology certainly is um, an intellectual discipline. There is, there's no getting around that. You, you have to use your brain uh, to to read, to understand, to meditate, to, to parse out implications. And so there's, there is a major intellectual component to theology. But theology, that, you know, of course we have to define it, um, but theology is never intended to be merely a, an intellectual discipline. So the way that I tend to think about theology is that theology is um, the the knowledge of God that is personally experienced and publicly expressed. That tends to be how I say it. So theology being the knowledge of God, which is not just uh, to know facts, right? It's, it's, it's not bare knowledge, but it is relational knowledge as well. So theology is meant to be this, this, these truths of God derived from the scriptures should be personally experienced, and then publicly expressed. So I don't think you're ever done until you've experienced the truth and now you've been able to offer it to somebody else. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that the, the hang-up for us is it is relatively easy to do theology uh, abstracted from the heart because you, you, can, um, you can read the books, you can memorize the verses, you can get the components down. And as hard as that may be, compared to like heart religion, as the Puritans would call it, that's easy. Um, and, and, and part of, like, we, like a lot of us like, love systematic theology, right? We, we love biblical theology, systematic theology. We love all these forms of theology. And uh, oftentimes those disciplines do not demonstrate how each theological truth or doctrine should be impacting the soul of the person. Mm-hmm. Um, you go to sermons for that typically, unless you're reading some of the Puritans, when in their treatises they will show you how this impacts the heart. And so I encourage people to think about theology in that way, right? It's, it's the knowledge of God. Think about it that way, the, to know the Lord, right? And it's not, 
I'm not being I'm not being inappropriate here when I say the idea of a man and a woman knowing one another biblically, right, is to lie down and be intimate. Um, and so it is somewhat similar in that this is an intimate relational knowledge. It's not physical or sexual. It's an intimate relational knowledge that we have with God. And how do you then take these doctrinal truths, whether it is the doctrine of providence or the doctrine of creation or the doctrine of blood atonement, how do you take these doctrines and, and draw the, the lines uh, f- from them to the experience, uh, those practical implications of these doctrines, so that we're doing more than just um, uh, gaining knowledge of, gaining the knowledge of, of facts that we can uh, regurgitate. And so you, you're familiar with the, the head, heart, hand mm-hmm. idea. So the way that, uh, that Jimmy and I talk about it a lot on our podcast is you, you've got to start to ask some basic questions about any given doctrine or any given passage of Scripture um, to help you drill down deep into what the implications are for my faith and my experience. And those questions are, um, how does this doctrine give me confidence before the face of God in the world? Does this doctrine give me confidence before the face of God in the world? Um, so you're dealing with the, the knowledge aspect of it, like what the doctrine is, so this is what you know, but how does knowing this give me confidence uh, before the face of God and before the world? Uh, the second one is, um, what does this doctrine do to my affections, or how does this doctrine stir my heart? Uh, does it convict me and, and, and bring me low? Does it raise me up? Um, and then what are the practical implications of this passage or doctrine that call me to action? What am I supposed to do? Mm. Um, am I supposed to... Obviously, we could talk about repent or believe, that, but also sometimes it is, well, I'm supposed to rejoice, or I'm supposed to mourn, or I'm supposed to love and forgive. So just asking some basic questions of any particular doctrine or passage uh, is, is a pretty simple way of demonstrating that there is a heart component to all theology. Love that, man. Um, just real quick, who would be some of the Puritans who you've read? I mean, I know you've you've talked about this. You talk about it on your own podcast. I mean, it, anyone who knows you knows that you're a fan of the old guys. Who would be a couple of Puritans for those listeners who want to get into that, but maybe sort of in the shallow end, mm-hmm. if, there, if there is such a shallow end? Who would be someone or one or two guys you'd recommend? Uh, Puritans, many of the Puritans are surprisingly easy to read. So, um, and obviously not as easy as you know, reading like the NIV Bible, right? That's a, that's a really accessible translation. Um, so it's a little bit harder than that, but not much. So uh, uh, Thomas Watson uh, is, 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 is an easy guy to read. Pick him up on, say, uh, the Lord's Prayer, for example. Um, or John Bunyan, John Bunyan on Prayer. You could read John Bunyan on prayer. It's one of the best works on prayer. It's not a big treatise, and you get it in a paperback form, mm-hmm. the Banner of Truth. Um, I think uh, one of the one of the the books that um, that had a big impact on me when I was going through my anxiety was a Lifting Up for the Downcast by William Bridge. Mm-hmm. So I mean, but really, the you can look at the Banner of Truth Puritan paperback series 
and pretty much pull any of those out and go. Because even with some of the Puritans that are harder to read, like John Owen, they've updated the language and, and edited mm. it. Uh, the other ones just aren't so bad. And the nice thing about Puritans is when you're reading them, usually their treatises and sermons are broken up into little sections because mm. they have lots of points. And uh, you can literally just say, I'll just take a section today, read that, and think about it, and you'll get through it in no time. You read one Puritan paperback, you're pretty good to read most of the Puritans from that point on. Right on. And actually, one of the books that you recommended to me, this is at least three years, probably three and a half years ago, was this book by Matthew Henry called The Quest for Meekness and Quietness of Spirit. And that book was so life-changing for me because I found myself, I was at this point in my life, I was in the cage stage of Calvinism. I was kind of, I was kind of approaching the end of, uh, you know, that stage when you become a new Calvinist and you got to be put in a cage because uh, every conversation ends up being about Calvinism and very, very ends up uh, very uh, argumentative. And um, so I, I remember reaching out to you saying, Joe, I, I find myself in all these arguments. I'm constantly feeling like I have to, I have to defend myself and, and uh, getting in these disputes, you know, theological. And I know I'm right. That's the thing. I know I'm right, but I don't like the, I don't like the way I'm approaching these things. Uh, and, and you said, well, you need meekness. And uh, it sounds like you could benefit from this book, The Quest for Meekness and Quietness of Spirit, and uh, by Matthew Henry. And w- was, was Matthew Henry considered a, a Puritan? Uh, yeah, yeah. He, um, and beloved, like his commentaries, uh, you know, later on Whitfield loved, loved him some Matthew Henry. Yeah. You know, find you somebody that loves you like uh, uh, George Whitfield loved Matthew Henry. Uh, so yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, and his all, his other he has another book also very small, uh, the pleasantness of a religious life. Mm. I mean, basically, it's desiring God a few hundred years before John Piper took a swing at it, and it's way better than desiring God. Mm. So and it's smaller. It's a great little book, uh, the pleasantness of a religious life. And the Puritans, of course, if you're not familiar, when the Puritans say religious, they mean Christian. Right. There was because for them there was only one religion, mm-hmm. the Christian faith, and then there was false religion. So a, a religious life is a pious Christian life. Mm-hmm. It is not. It, it it doesn't carry the negative connotations that it does for people today. So there's one doctrine in particular, Joe. If, if you don't mind, I, I want to take just a little bit of a rabbit trail, just because this is something that's come up in my own circles uh, recently in the last few days, and that is the doctrine specifically of penal substitutionary atonement. Now this is a doctrine that. I wrestled with uh, a few a few years back, and primarily my own wrestling came because I, I I'm the kind of guy like I want to see something in black and white in scripture for it to if I'm going to believe it. And I remember I called up our mutual friend Bob Stevenson on the phone. And I remember I'm standing outside, I think in the, the parking lot of uh, Burger King. I'm walking back and forth talking with Bob. Bob, how do we know that Jesus? paid, you know, that penal substitutionary atonement is true, that Jesus specifically was punished in our behalf, you know, in our stead, that, you know, that he suffered for our sins, that he took my place, and that that sacrifice atoned or propitiated um, God's wrath, you know, that expiated God's wrath and propitiated uh, our sins. You can help me with the formulation there. But this doctrine in particular, can we talk about why is this doctrine important for Christians to believe? And is this just some esoteric, uh, something for theologians to worry about? Or is this something that every Christian needs to apply to their own soul? Can you talk about that? Yeah, I I think um, the atonement clearly is a central idea and doctrine throughout the whole scripture. And the death of Christ is clearly and obviously 
not only um, an important doctrine, it is a central identifier of the Christian faith. So what we say about the death of Christ, like I determined to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Like so the death of Jesus is pretty much the, the thing. Yeah. So what we have to say about it is critically important. And I'm convinced that, yeah, it, we um, the idea of substitutionary, penal atonement, that, um, that Christ died, suffered for sinners in their place, receiving, absorbing uh, the wrath of God, expiating our sins. Um, I think that, yeah, this is, uh, this is at the heart of the gospel. I don't see any other way around it. And um, I, th- I think there's plenty of scriptures to, to speak to that. Um, I think the problem comes because a lot of people, they don't have a, a full understanding of this theological position. And so they say things like, well, uh, propitiation, like satisfying the wrath of God, this is, I mean, that's a primitive idea. This is a pagan idea. Or, you know, Jesus suffering, the Son of God suffering for us. I mean, that, how is that not cosmic child abuse? So I think those sorts of complaints and arguments are coming from a, a, a gross misunderstanding of what these doctrines teach, not just a neglect of specific biblical passages. Okay, so this sounds, again, like we need to understand the character of God, right? Going back to Psalm 73, we can reason like beasts, or we can reason in a, a human way, a, a way that rightly, rightly relates to God who made us in his image. And, and when we understand the character of God and his holiness, um, we, we understand that sin has to be dealt with. And the wages of sin really is death. And, you know, I was just looking up a few verses here. First Peter 2.24 says, He himself, talking about Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So there's that personal application. I, I love that, right? It's so good. He bore our sins on the tree. And it, it doesn't stop there. It's a comma. In order that we might die to sin and then live. Not just go to heaven, but to be transformed, to be changed. Yeah. Yes. Love it. And then he, he calls up Isaiah 53, by his wounds, you have been healed. So there's, there's this personal element to it. Jesus didn't just die abstractly for some group, for some nameless, faceless group, but he died specifically for me, for you, man. That is, that's just, that's good, man. That's good. Um, that's just encouraging and, and, uh, restorative. I mean, I could just sit there and just think about that. So what happens when, if we lose solid theology, we lose a sense of who God is. We can't relate to him rightly in this doctrine in particular, if we lose penal substitutionary atonement, what do we lose in our daily Christian lives? Well, I think it 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 creates a shallow. I'm, and I'm trying to be I'm trying to be fair and even generous here, right? So I think best case scenario, um, you have a shallow, a more shallow understanding of the basis of your reconciliation to God. Mm. So, the propitiation, for example, right? So First John two two, Romans. Uh, Philippians, like it's the word, the Greek word halasmus is, is, is in plentiful use. And we know what that word means. So um, people say like, well, well, see, propitiation, right? That's a, it's a ugly, primitive, pagan idea that, that you have to satisfy your God is so angry. He's really mad at you. And so now you have to, you have to go kill an animal just to, just to calm him down. 
right? And if and if yeah, and if that was the picture, I I would mock it as well, because um, what a what a petty little little vindictive little man syndrome God that is. Like I don't know who who wants to care about that. Um, but it, it, it there's, there are some differences. Number one, um, like you said, we're dealing with a God who is absolutely, perfectly holy and just and always good, and our sins are injustices every time. They are injustices against others. They are injustices against God, um, and he is rightly offended. But really the difference here between the pagan notion of propitiation and what God has done is that God propitiates himself. He satisfies his own wrath. He, he doesn't ask you to do it. He, he's not petty. Right? He balances the scales perfectly. And he, in his love, chooses to save, to forgive, to quench his own anger, and he doesn't ask us to take care of it. Mm. He takes care of it by sending his son um, to willingly die on our behalf. And when you understand that God has forgiven me of my sins, and that is in large part possible because his wrath was poured out, his justice was poured out on his son, um, you get a fuller understanding of the basis of your reconciliation. God has to be just. He has to punish sin. He can't just, he's not a grandpa who can wink at us and be like, don't worry about it, kid. Right. Go, go have as many cookies as you want while your parents are gone. It's no big deal. Like, he has to punish sin. So how is he going to be, as Paul says, just and the justifier? How can he maintain justice and punish all sin while justifying wicked people? Well, that's only possible through substitutionary penal atonement. Thank you for laying that out. And I, I know that's going to be a, a blessing and a benefit to people who can, who can listen to that and maybe even you know, go back and listen to that a couple of times. You, know, you can pause it here, go back and listen to that again, because that's, that's good. That's, um, that's the kind of theology that actually has a, a heart impact. Um, I, just, I wanted to say, because you were, you were getting a little teared up talking about the atonement there. Like you were getting, like you were feeling it. You were like your affections were stirred, right? Yeah. The I don't know that I was getting teared. You a little dusty in here. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Little little gloss. Very very stoic, very stone faced. No, not really. So I I'm not I'm a rather stoic dude, right? I I'm happy or I'm angry. Those are about the two emotions that I have. And but I can remember as a Christian when I was studying the doctrine of the atonement and particular redemption. And I was uh, adamantly opposed to the doctrine, just not having it, you know. So I committed the whole Christmas break to just studying that doctrine, and I studied atonement and particular redemption. And uh, I read every verse that had anything to do in Scripture um, with blood, cross, death, atonement, you know, sacrifice. I read context, commentaries, everything. And at the end of Christmas break, I'm sitting, I can remember this vividly, I'm sitting at my desk, and I've got my Bible, and I've got my concordances open, no no computers back then, right? So all this stuff's open on my desk, and I begin to cry, because Jesus died for Joe Thorne. He he didn't just die, and like, oh, there's something that we get out of this death. Mm -hmm. He, no, he had us in mind. And so when we're celebrating the Lord's Supper here, the last thing that I tell them is, um, we fence the table, we do the whole thing, and we say, so listen, as you eat and drink, remember that Christ died for you. And that, to me, like you said, I don't, I, I'm not, I don't get very emotional, but the love of God for the unworthy sinner that I am, it's too much. Man, there's this movie 
well, obviously, you know Pilgrim's Progress. Somebody went and made an animated version of it. And the last four days or so, it's been like this exclusive online event. Actually, as we record, by the time this airs, it'll be already done. But um, we're going to, my family and I, are, we watched part one yesterday. We're going to watch part two today. And there's this one scene, and I don't even know if it's original in the book. I haven't, I've only worked my way halfway, halfway through the book. But there's this scene where Christian's burden falls off. And, I, and now that I'm thinking about it, I don't think this particular depiction is in the book. But he, his burden begins to fall off. And as it does, it's, it rolls down the, the hill and it tumbles right into this open cave. And as you look at the cave, it's, it's the tomb of Christ. It's got the stone rolled away. And as I'm watching this and I'm realizing what's happened to this burden of his, the burden represents ultimately his guilt and his, his shame and his failure to live up to God's commands, his awareness of the law and his failure to live up to it. And it, it tumbles down, it, it goes into the, the grave and uh, this open grave. And man, something, I just start, I mean, I really do start tearing up. And I look over at my wife. You know, the kids are just watching. They don't know what's going on. And I look over at Elisa, and she's got tears, and I've got tears, and we're just looking at each other, and we're sharing this moment. And we're just like, that is it. That's exactly it. And the kids are, are looking at us like, Dad, what's, what's going on? Daddy's got something in his eye, kids. You know, and then, of course, I explain to him, this is the beautiful truth. This is, this is what the Lord has done for us. And um, three of my kids are professing Christians. And it's like, okay, wonderful. We'll see. You know, we're praying. We're still praying for him. Our fourth one is 18 months old. So we're, we're, we're yeah, it probably, she probably is. She probably is. Age of accountability. You're Baptist. You know about that. But, you know, there's something, there's something so powerful about taking theology, applying it to our lives, and... You know, like that moment that I had with Elisa where we looked at each other, we shared this mutual understanding of this theological doctrine and really it, it impacted our hearts together. There is something in that communal experience. And and you've written about, about the importance of theological coaching. And I love how you call it theological coaching as opposed to just, uh, I don't know, emotional coaching or something like that. Um, but you've, you've written, you wrote on the Place for Truth website and then you there's an article on the Doc and Devo site about the importance of theological coaches. Can you talk about that concept? Why is, why is that important? Is that, is that a necessity for every Christian to have a theological coach? And how do we go about getting a theological coach in our lives? Well, ideally, your pastors should be your theological coaches, right, in your local church. Like that, those, are, those, are, those are the guys that you should be able to trust and go to. So I, I hope that they would be your theological coaches. And then there will be other theological coaches, right, that men or women that are around you, that you have relationships with, that are farther along, right, farther along than you, that can help you, guide you. Um, and it'll, it'll be mutually beneficial, but you, you need somebody who is farther along than you are. Now, I, I think, you know, basically your, your pastors or mature people that you're going to find to help you, if you're in the, the right situation, you can be in a church where you can't really allow your pastors to be your theological coaches, unfortunately. But, um, and then, of course, there are, there are books, uh, resources like that online that are, that are helpful. But ideally, you want a person that's going to speak into your life and, and help you work through it. Now, my article was really focusing on pastors because, uh, you know, in, in my context of church planting, church revitalization, and, and just um, church health, mm -hmm. 
there's a lot of talk about coaching, and you need a coach, you need a gospel coach, uh, you need a systems coach, you uh, you need a guy that's going to help you, you know, lead your elder team well. You need all these coaching, but I wasn't hearing anybody talk about theology coaching, mm-hmm. and uh, and really that's where we uh, we get into a lot of trouble. Your theology sometimes there are there are precursors to our theology moving. It's you know it's our emotions first, and then our theology will follow. We will adapt our theology because we're following our emotions. Right. Or we will um, we will begin to slide morally, and we'll uh, move our theology to uh, a, to comfort us in the move of our morality. And sometimes the theology is moving first. But what I find most of the times is is the theology is 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 following something else. And this is one of the reasons why theology coaching is so important because you need. Uh, people that are farther along than you that have more insight, have, have more exposure or more investment to help you see when you're getting it wrong. And good coaches really just ask you a ton of questions to help you do the work yourself. Like, so a good coach isn't going to do it for you. Mm-hmm. They're not just going to tell you, hey, this is the right answer, dummy. Do this. You believe this. You're wrong. Yeah. The good coach is going to actually ask you questions and challenge your your conclusions and your presuppositions when they're off so that you are forced to do the work of mining the Scripture, being faithful to Scripture, rightly dividing the Word, and that becomes uh, a safety net. Um, and I would say that we need theology coaches in particular because um, none of us have got it right. There, uh, even, even, like, okay, even if the articles of your confession are all true, they're absolutely true. Like it's just, it's it's almost a miracle. Every article, every word of your confession is true. Okay, uh, but you aren't. <laughs> you aren't entirely true. And and the way that you imply uh, apply those doctrines and the implications are going to be wrong. Mm-hmm. So you need theology coaches to help you work that stuff out. All right. Now let's say you are in one of these churches where maybe you're not sure mm-hmm. if your pastor can serve as a theology coach, not because of availability, but. Maybe you've got some questions. Maybe you're, you're new to the doctrines of grace. You've sort of discovered, you know, good old Puritan theology, something like that. Or, or maybe you've gone all the way into correct theology and you become a new covenant theologian. Um, and we're all on different we're all on different steps in our journey, you know. But um, let's let's say you have some concerns about your pastor. Can can your pastor still serve? Are you are you committing a sort a sort of uh, ecclesiological adultery if you go outside of your church and and go to you know somebody else for spiritual coaching? Do you need to have that that uh, discussion with your pastor? How do you sort through that? Well, I think that if um, if a Christian is at a church where they have some significant disagreements theologically with the pastoral leadership. Um, they have to determine, can I stay here peacefully and cooperate and not be divisive? Uh, and if you can and you want to, then okay, all right, then that's great. You're following your conscience. You're, you're maintaining the, the unity and the bond of peace. I mean, that's all, that, that's great. And in that case, you're probably not going to be going to your pastor for a lot of theological help. You'll be going to your pastor for some other forms of wisdom. Obviously, he's worth uh, following as he follows Jesus. And in, in that case, then praise the Lord that you live in the 21st century where you can literally read or listen to every theologian who's ever existed and had something good to say. Right. Um, from, from podcasts like this or Doctrine and Devotion at doctrineanddevotion.com um, to, your, to, to preachers, right? And I'll, I'll tell you what, the, the, the famous preachers, the ones that come to mind right now, 
there are so many preachers that are way better than them that are available on iTunes. Mm. Like just like I find the best preaching in just like your regular churches. Like th- some of these guys can tear it up. You just right. you find the right guys. So we have lots of resources. So that's the case. Now, if you are trying to stay at if if you're if you're at a church where you're at odds and it's creating hostility in your heart uh, and you feel like the need to speak your mind and uh, then you need to humbly let your pastor know that you're leaving because you don't want to cause division. You want to honor the Lord and, and then walk your way out. That would be my advice. Love it. Yeah. You know, um, for those, uh, I, I'm sure you, you know about sermon audio, obviously. Um, for those who don't know about sermon audio, you can listen to hundreds of different pastors. And these are like regular Joes getting up there faithfully every, every Sunday, uh, every Lord's Day preaching. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Search by 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 uh, by Bible verse, by different topic, uh, by location or or church, and um, I think you have a good point too about some of these guys preach way better than your celebrity pastors, and I think that some of that has to do with the fact that they've got their congregation and they've been training their congregation for so long. They're all on the same page, at least for the most part. So they just don't give a rip about how this is going to play on Twitter or YouTube. And they can just speak God's truth so boldly. You know, they don't have to worry about their book deal. They can just get up there and uh, go no holds barred on a particular point. And uh, yeah, I've been really blessed by Sermon Audio and some of these regular regular preachers. Another guy like that uh, is Paul Washer. I mean, I, I can hardly even listen to Paul Washer anymore because um, I have to, I'm like, all right, Paul, yeah, I get it. I know, I'm, I'm, t- I'm a wretch. I know, I'll repent of that. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, stop speaking to my soul like that. Um, so uh, here's an important question. Um, well, let me put it this way. Uh, before we move on, anything else you want to add about spiritual, uh, sorry, uh, theological coaching? If, if guys want to... Outside of the Puritans, if they if they are there any good authors right now? If people want to take their study about these things to the next level, um, maybe they want to become a theological coach. What would be a good step they could take in that direction? Yeah, I don't know. Um, you know, if you're if you're new to theology, um, but before you're thinking about being a theology coach, your 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 fundamental uh, responsibility is to make sure that you are theologically coached and grounded. That um, you know, so if you're new to theology, I would say you know pick up something like um, James Montgomery Boyce's uh, Foundations of the Christian Faith. Um, it's a big book, but it's written uh, at uh, at, a, at a good level, and it's better than something like Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology by a hundredfold. So um, pick up that book. It's 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 even easier to read than Grudem's Systio. Everybody likes to start others with with Grudem. So I, w- I would say go with something like that. Um, one of the guys, I'll tell you, one of the guys that's coming to mind who writes some really good stuff on the practical end is a guy named Brian Hedges. And so he has written a book on, um, on mortification. It has a terrible title. Sorry, Brian. Um, but it's called License to Kill. (laughs) A field guide for mortifying. It's like, all right. But it's on killing your sin. It's a great book. It's really, really good. And he's got another book, uh, right now on, well, let me just, I'm going to forget the title. Brian Hedges. Check out Brian Hedges, modern author and really good stuff. I would say, you know, start start with those if you're new to theology and and if you're looking for a coach, um, look around. Who are who are people in your church? Are there people in your church that you respect that you look up to? Go and ask them. Say, hey, I would like some theological coaching, and they might be like, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. You say, like, I just want you to tell me what to read and help me think. You know, give me give me some some direction and ask me a lot of questions. And start 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 any basic way you can. 
Love it. So if folks want to follow up with you, follow your work, um, how can they do that? Uh, okay, so doctrineanddevotion.com. That's the podcast that Jimmy Fowler and I host together. Uh, we have episodes that drop every Monday and Thursday. It's uh, They're about 30 minutes each, and on uh, Mondays we're going through uh, theology and theological doctrines. We're covering uh, a, an old Baptist confession. Uh, and then on Thursdays, it's free-for-all. We just talk whatever we talk about. And uh, our podcast is different because it's not just serious theological discussion. It's two really close friends yucking it up and laughing while we have a serious theological discussion. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a different kind of a thing. And there's articles published there as well. Um, you can find me on social media, um, at Joe Thorne. I'm basically everything at Joe Thorne. So Instagram, Twitter, all that stuff, Facebook, um, and then if you're, if you're looking for a regular guy preaching the Word, uh, you go to RedeemerFellowship.org, and um, all of our sermons are there. So whether it's me or one of our many uh, pastors, one of our many preachers, um, you'll, hear it. You'll, you'll hear them uploaded. They're uploaded usually every Monday, and uh, you can check out our series and, and what God's doing uh, here at our local church. Thank you for listening. There are hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there, and I really appreciate you listening to mine. For more on this subject, check out the show notes for links, and be sure to come back next time for Sons of Thunder 3. For all our resources, go to truthinconversation.com. That's the Think Institute website. And hey, if you enjoyed this, if you thought it was helpful, please help us get the word out. Share this episode with a friend that you think would enjoy it. I hope this made you think.